Um, this past week, I was going to pick up the liturgies at uh, Staples over by Northfield, and as I was doing that, I noticed that the, the parking lot was all torn up, and they're building something there, and beams are going in, so I stopped by one of the guys who were working, because I was curious what it was going to be. I couldn't see any signage, and I said, uh, hey, what are you guys building? And he stops, and he kind of throws out a couple ideas, and, he's, he, and then he says, actually, honestly, I, I have no idea. And um, I thought to myself immediately, I thought, what a, just a fantastic philosophical metaphor for the human condition. Just like really diligently, skillfully, busily working, building a life, building a career, just moving, uh, you know, through this, this, uh, this life of ours uh, with really not a clear picture on where this whole thing is headed. Uh, no real certainty as to what's going to happen in the end. How is this thing wrapping up? Uh, it just really struck me. And um, it wasn't even that he had it. It wasn't, didn't disturb him. He wasn't embarrassed by it. He's like, I don't really have any clarity. Also, I don't care. Back to what I'm doing. Just using his skills and all of his effort. And, and I thought that could be a picture for, uh, uh, for many of us. We're going to look at some wisdom literature uh, this morning, perhaps the next couple of weeks. And uh, our text for the, today is Proverbs chapter 3. It's there in your bulletins. I'm going to read from 13 to 20. And wisdom literature provokes us to consider what we're building our life on in relation to where we're going. Wisdom literature provokes the reader to consider thoughtfully the trajectory. Not just to be busily, skillfully going about what I'm about today with really no thought for the implications of any of this. Wisdom literature is not like bumper sticker theology, whereby uh, the Proverbs are these short, pithy, provocative thoughts. You just kind of go, oh, I like that, and I just stick that on my mirror, and like that's, that's my life verse. Wisdom literature is meant to get us to really be really deeply reflective thinking. Uh, it's not just the book of Proverbs, actually. For those of you who may be exploring Christian faith or new to the, uh, new to the Bible, um, it's not just the Proverbs that is wisdom literature, but it's the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job. And they have three distinct different voices, and you really need to read all of them, and not just once, but like continually meditate on all three to get a good picture of what biblical wisdom looks like for our life, how it guides our life, and how we think about the human condition in terms of meaning and purpose and suffering and all these sorts of things. The book of Proverbs, it's, it has the voice of a woman, Lady Wisdom. She's like this friend you want in your life because whenever you need advice, uh, she, she's just dialed into nuance. She's dialed into insightful perspective. That's like the voice of Proverbs, this brilliant woman who you want in your corner. The book of Ecclesiastes is like this skeptic who's seen that no matter whether you're a good person or a terrible person, both those kinds of people get sick. Whether you're rich or you're poor, both of those people can have calamity happen to them. Whether you're, whether you're a wise and person of generosity or you're a miserly, you know, predatory capitalist, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter how, how you choose to live at all. Because in the end, the grave awaits. That's Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is like the guy walking through the party who just wants to cool off the conversation. And, and, and in the words of uh, the philosopher, modern comedic, you know, James A. Castor, just say, death comes to us all. And then leaves. And now everybody go, oh. That's Ecclesiastes. That's the tone. The book of Job is like this weathered old guy who's been a lot, through a lot, and has seen a lot of suffering. The poetry of Job, it's dense Hebrew poetry. The point of it is to say, like, there is sometimes no rhyme or reason for suffering. You can 
live to the glory of God and you can walk out the principles of Proverbs and still have calamity happen. So in order to have a biblical understanding of wisdom, all three of those books are important because it helps frame uh, how we understand uh, the frailty of the human condition. It challenges our presuppositions about truth and it brings us to a place of humility where we can say, I need to bend my knee to one greater than I who can, uh, who can uh, deal with the deepest questions of longing in my heart, who can answer my questions about purpose and meaning uh, so that ultimately I'm not just building away with no thought for where this whole thing is headed. Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She's more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are paths of peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. This is God's word. This morning, I want us to consider this passage, think about two things that are clearly given to us here. The first one is the benefits of living according to the wisdom of the scripture. And after we look at the benefits, I want us to consider the basis for living according to the wisdom of the scripture. The benefits, uh, sorry, the benefits and the basis. So, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, Proverbs is given to us through the voice of this wise woman, Lady Wisdom. And uh, again, for those of you new to the scriptures, a lot of times you'll read through the Proverbs and it'll say, blessed is the man. Uh, this, this particular translation says, blessed is the one. But just for those of you who are, who are new, this might be helpful for you is that the Bible will sometimes use these male-female metaphors because it's trying to convey, you know, different imagery. But quite often through the Bible, uh, particularly the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, man sometimes means the male, but more often than not, it actually just means humanity. So in the, in, in the Hebrew, the word for human is Adam. So in, the, in Genesis, when God names Adam, Adam, it, it, the, the, it's, his name is human. And so that's why all throughout the Old Testament, it's like, blessed is the man who does this and the man who does that. And it's not inviting all the ladies to go, hey, what about us? It's just blessed is, are the people who do these things. So just might be helpful for, for some of you who are newer uh, to the text. But anyways, verse 13 says, this person is blessed. And uh, blessed could also be translated happy and some of the English translations say that because uh, again in the Hebrew I know it seems like man it's kind of early in the morning for Hebrew but I just need to give you this because most of you have been in church a really long time and sometimes when you hear things a thousand times it's easy to dismiss them so you definitely don't need Hebrew to understand the Bible but sometimes it just puts some color some flavor a little bit of spice on things to say oh that's new so the the Hebrew word for blessed and happy is asher and asher means uh, could also be translated like this intense exclamation. It's like people who watch sporting events and something occurs that's a game changer and instinctively something inside you goes, Whoa! I need that. That is the Esher. That is the blessed state. It's like I'm in a state of blessedness before God. I'm a child of God. 
And because of what I have found, and that's the point, blessed is the one who finds. So finding it, it's like that moment when, oh, this game just changed. This whole game changed. That's what it gives rise to in the soul, this joy. Blessed is the one who finds this wisdom. That's why repeatedly through Proverbs, it's like the beginning of wisdom. It all starts with what? The fear of God, the knowledge of God, the awe of God, the worship of God, the reverence of God, having your mind blown by God. When, once you get to the point as a human being on planet Earth, when you believe at the core that death is not final, that's a game changer. And if, you, if anybody in here or listening online has better news than that, I would love to hear it. You see, so that is what, where this whole thing begins. He says, there is this intense exclamation. Uh, it is the beginning of wisdom. Everything is downstream from this gospel, the God who saves, the one who came in Jesus Christ, his, his perfect life, his atoning death, his divine resurrection. When you come to see the beauty and the glory of that, this gives rise to this game-changing joy. And so to borrow from seventh, uh, 17th century uh, theologian, his name is Charles Bridges, he says this, Wisdom, she is no sullen matron who entertains her followers with sighs and tears. To gain the joys of the next life does not mean we bid farewell to the benefits in this life. That's a slander from the great liar. And so this saving grace of God, you know, this is the basis for, for trusting in this wisdom. And I'm going to get more on that a little bit later. But being a child of God and living according to the word of God, it brings these benefits of this, uh, this wisdom. In verse 14, we're given these benefits. It's some poetry for us to consider. What are the benefits? And it talks about how the poetry invites us to consider how finding this wisdom of God, walking in a way that is congruent with the one who created you, um, this is better than... Silver and gold and jewels and wealth and nothing compares. Long life, riches, honor. We read lists like that. This is why, it's, this is why we have to meditate on it. The Bible reads us. You can't just read that. It's tempting to fly over it. Mm -hmm, got it. Wisdom, jewels, riches, honor. Got it. Okay, it's better than all that stuff. Just stop for a moment. I can't do justice this morning, but I'm going to just get you started on meditating on this. Consider the audience that heard this and consider the one saying it. Okay, consider the audience. How many Christians do you think throughout all of history, globally and historically, had at their disposal gold and silver and jewels and what? I mean, how many? Not a lot. So the audience is like, they're not like, oh yeah, I get it because I got this stack of rubies and wisdom is better than that. Wow, they don't have it. They don't even have it. So consider the audience. Here's these people who have conceived in their minds of, if I only had this, my life would be complete. If I only had that, things would be good. If I only had this thing that I'm conceiving of in my mind, the audience doesn't even have it. But consider now the source. Consider the one who's saying it. Does Solomon have wisdom and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, gold and silver and jewels and wealth and riches? He, Solomon had wealth like few people will ever know wealth. Solomon was the son of the king. He inherited wealth. And then by his own wisdom, he accrued even more wealth. So Solomon was in one of those stratospheric wealth conditions where it's like nothing really costs anything. Now, I know for most of us, we grew up reading the menu when we went out from right to left. Sometimes I still do that out of habit. Right? It's like, what am I in the mood for? I think I'm in the mood for $5.99. That's what I'm in the mood for. What is that? I'll have the tomato slices and the orange chunk. Like that's what I'll, that's, 
But there are people who nothing really costs anything. There's people in the world like that. Right? Congratulations, Jeff Bezos, you did it. Like there's people who nothing really costs anything. Solomon was one of those people. So the, the writer of this is like, I am telling you that I have had an existential crisis. If you'd like to read it, read my book of Ecclesiastes. I have had an existential crisis about how all of this wealth cannot compare to living in congruence with the one who created you, loving him, desiring him, having this blessed state leap out of your soul, this joyous place of like bending your knee to the king. I can't, that's what the, that's what the writer is saying. And so he is inviting us into this, this place of saying, whoa, 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 is it possible that the thing I keep telling myself week after week, if I only had this, life would be okay. Is it possible that if I have God, that I actually have what I need? What he's provoking here is to consider, and you get this when you read you know, his, uh, his philosophical crisis, the book of Ecclesiastes, and he realizes that in the end, there's this graveyard waiting for everybody. And, where he, and that leads him to having a trust transfer from all of these things, whether it's finding you know, it in, in riches and wealth, or you can swing into the other ditch and it's pleasure and recreation either way. He, I mean, when he gets to this point, what he realizes is in the end, if you have everything, but you're not a child of God, you have nothing. That's where this is headed. Hey, what you building? If you're not a child of God, the answer is nothing. You're building nothing. You say, you hear that and you say, this is why I don't like church. This is why I have a problem with Christianity because they keep saying things like, you know, um, like that. And I think you can just leave the world better than you left it and you can be a great person and you can love your neighbor and you don't need to be a Christian to do that. And I couldn't agree with you more that you don't need to be a Christian just to be a great person and try and quote unquote leave the world better than the way you left it. But here's the thing. A hundred years from now, who will care about your core values or know them or know your name? 500 years from now. If you rise to the place of the greatest influence in Canadian history in a thousand years, your name will be maybe a footnote. And all of the things that you, the ways that you changed the world. Some other generation will rise up after you and go, we disagree with everything that uh, this individual said and wrote. And they will take your philosophy and they will take your core values and they'll use them as a birdcage liner. Why? Because that's what every generation in the history of the world has always done. And we're still doing it, and it's not new. And Solomon knew that, and that's why he had this crisis. And he realized, if I have everything, but I'm not a child of God, I have nothing. But if I have nothing, and I am a child of God, then in the end, I will have everything. Why? Because Christian faith is not an evacuation project. It's a restoration project. In the end, heaven is not getting zap fried out of planet Earth and floating around as a ethereal part of the universe with no rhyme or reason or purpose. We don't just wear togas and play harps for forever. Christian faith, the end is not evacuation. It is restoration. God happens to love this planet and he happens to love human beings and he's going to restore everything to what he intended in the beginning. This is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us. And he's going to restore your physical body, raise you from the dead, dust the dirt off to enjoy it forever. This is the glorious picture of the Christian faith. The Bible began in a garden. Christ's, death and, uh, Christ's resurrection happened in a garden. Spoiler alert, Revelations chapter 21 and 2. The people of God are in a garden, a garden city. I mean, this is the glorious picture of the, the, the cyclical picture of, of God bringing things full circle and redeeming all things. So the benefits of wisdom is that 
when you look at this text here, it talks about wisdom bringing long life and riches and honor. And I know that in our modern Western construct, we can look at those words and think, cold, hard cash. And it does not mean that because the audience, most of the audience never had that. Most Christians globally never had that. Most Christians today still don't have it, aren't going to have it. The biblical picture of prosperity is this holistic flourishing in the soul. And it can look like material wealth. It can. It has. But that's not the totality of it. Long life, the text here, you see that it says there um, in verse uh, 16, this long life, it can mean you live to be old and gray and 90, 95 years old. It can mean that. But again, you read Ecclesiastes and you read Job and you go, well, it can't only mean that or always mean that because we've all just thought of a person who loved Jesus like crazy and they died quite young. Here is the glory of the benefit of wisdom. Is that long life by whose definition? If it's by human standards, then long life is whatever, 90, 95 years. But what is long life by, by the eternal God standard? It is eternal. You don't, I mean, you don't, I'm not, this isn't a stretch. I like how you're making a stretch. It's not a stretch. You don't need Hebrew to know it. I'm not going to go to some obscure Hebrew to, to, to point that out. It's in the next verse. Tree of life. We'll get there in a second. I mean, that, that, this is what it's poking at. What is this long life? What is this prosperity? It is the glory of knowing that you are a child of God that transcends whatever it is that you happen to be going through. And then bending our knee to say, Lord, I, would, I, I, I want you to guide and direct uh, my life. I want to live uh, in wisdom uh, according to how you define truth and wisdom not according to my definitions of my truth and my wisdom. Not allowing the culture to babysit me and indoctrinate me or my children on how I ought to think about things, but allow your word to guide and direct me in all things. Whether it's matters of how I handle my finances, relate to the poor, issues of justice and mercy, caring for the outcast, the refugee. Whether it's sexual ethics, whether it's controversial uh, conversations that we have with folks whereby the way in which we understand some of these topics is different than the way that our neighbors understand them. And yet, being people who are gracious, thoughtful, generous, not constantly putting ourselves at odds with the city all the time, and, and, and considering that faithful Christianity. You know, there's, not, there's these two ditches that the church has always fallen into. We still fall into them. One is you adopt all the ideas of the city and you just embrace them. And whatever flag that they choose to fly, we fly it. We just say, hey, this is what you're up to. This is what we're up to, too. We don't want to be controversial. We will, we will not allow the Bible to be our standard for faith and practice. We'll let the city be it. And then if the Bible doesn't happen to match, we'll just flex on what the scripture says. That's one way to go. Adopt the ideology of the city. Well, here's the other way you can go. Is to go, we just got to revolt against the city, man. We just got to fight. It's us against them. And that's faithful Christianity. To just make sure that in every encounter, all the time, everybody knows how spit and mad we are, that our ethics don't match. And I got to tell you, as I continually read through the Bible over and over and over, I keep seeing something congruent in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Babylon and Rome. Rome, the new Babylon, by the way. Spoiler alert. Revelation. You got another beast showing up. The new Babylon. There's always a Babylon. Oh, how does God direct his children to relate to Babylon? Seek to go to the city, build houses, plant vineyards. Make, if, everybody, if all your neighbors are doing good, you're going to do good. It doesn't say bend your knee to the principles of Babylon. Don't worship the gods of Babylon. You worship God Almighty. 
and love your neighbor in Babylon. And, it can, and that's the book of Daniel. You can read that. They're exiles. They're slaves. And what does God say to them? He doesn't say stand up and fight them at every turn. He says Lips, live subversely. You already have a king. Babylon, the king of Babylon is not your king. And now, live, live in wisdom and minister in grace. And you see these people who God used, who rose to the top of these ranks in the Old Testament, who God used politically to like really influence culture in like radical ways. It's not every you know, child of God that he's using in that manner, but there are some that he chose to do it. And what do you see in their life? They're uncompromising in their love for God, but there is this tremendous wisdom in which the way in which they relate to their neighbors. So they're not adopting the philosophy of the culture, but they're also not standing up and fighting the culture. There's this way forward. And again, you see it in Rome. Uh, you see it in, uh, as you read through the book of Romans, the way in which you relate to the city, relate to the government, you know, bend your knee to them. But how do we, how do we walk out this wisdom in love and in grace with them? Let the scriptures form uh, our views and, and, and then from that formation, uh, may we operate in grace and in truth uh, in the city in which we live. And so we've got these benefits that translate uh, past uh, the conversations around riches and honor and prosperity to verse 17 and 18. Look at it. Pleasantness and peace. A tree of life. Let's just camp there for a second. This is why I said what I said about the wisdom of God and long life not looking like 90 years and money in the bank. Tree of life. I mean, that only means one thing. I mean, he's using that language on purpose. It's from Genesis 3. There's only one tree of life. And if you go back to Genesis 3 and you read about the tree of life, guess what you'll find? After man sins and says, we don't need God, we'll be God, thank you. We don't need you to define what is good and evil. We'll define what's good and evil, thanks. And after mankind tries to climb up into the throne of God and says, we'll be God, and God banishes uh, humanity, our first parents, and sin causes this chasm uh, between us and God, there's a tree of life and God guards the path to the tree of life. The poetry of Genesis three says the judgment of God looks like this flaming sword, keeping them from the tree of life. Why? Because if they eat from the tree of life, this is the words of God, Genesis three, if they eat from the tree of life, they will live forever. Here we're being told the wisdom of God, the truth of his scriptures is like a tree of life that will enable our souls to flourish, be nourished, be renewed, be rejuvenated forever. The truth of God, the wisdom of God is eternal and forever. You know, some, I, I know that perhaps some of you exploring Christian faith or listening online, you hear this kind of talk and you think to yourself, oh my goodness, you know, but I mean, is it reasonable to to have your life guided in 2021 by this old ancient book. And I would challenge you to consider that's not a very good way to think about God's word. If there's no God, none of this matters, okay? But if there is a God, then what he says is not ancient. It's timeless, which means his truth is timeless. And if your truth contradicts his truth, then your truth is actually eternally out of date, <laughs> So it's true or isn't. And if it is, then it's faithful to guide our lives and guide our souls into flourishing, this tree of life. And the picture of the tree of life in Genesis is used now as this picture of, oh, how do we then guide our lives into wisdom? Well, it means whatever there is in my life where I need to bend my knee, um, then I ought to do that because I'm actually 
coming into congruence with the God who created and saved me. Which, which leads us to the next thing, the basis for trusting in God's wisdom. These, these benefits that we just discussed, you know, we enjoy the benefits not simply because we intellectually assent to precepts, but because we love a person. We love the person behind the precepts. And so the basis for trusting in God's wisdom is not because there's this abstract God that we can't wrap our minds around, but when we look at Jesus, when we look at Jesus, we see that Jesus is not abstract, he's concrete, and he's God's wisdom personified because Jesus is God. And we see this transcendent God now in tenderness and love and care and generosity and mercy and forgiveness. We see him caring for the outcast and the poor and the downtrodden. We see him speaking truth to religious power, those who are abusing their power for the Instead of blessing the benefit of those under their authority, they're actually burdening those under their authority. And we see this all in Jesus. And so the basis for trusting in God's wisdom is found in 19 and 20. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Living in line with the reality and truth, as God defines it, what this means is we are aligning ourselves to his reality. If he is the creator of all things, it only stands to reason, it's only logic, that we allow for him to faithfully guide our lives and for his word to faithfully guide our ways. You know, this universe, it it talks about the earth and the heavens. It's getting us to go cosmic. What's the basis for continually reading reading the scriptures over and over and over and allowing them to slowly have this formative effect in our hearts? If you have children, what's the purpose of reading it over and over with your children? For those of you who are happily single, you don't have children, but you're part of the family of God and you see these children as your little nieces and nephews and you want to impart into their life uh, how they ought to you know, love this God of the universe. What's the purpose of continually going over and over the word of God? The purpose, the purpose and the basis of it is that we've got to go cosmic. He's established the heavens. We live in this universe of... Uh, you know, staggering, mind-melting, astronomical precision. The smaller you go, the bigger you go, all you find in this universe of ours is radical intention, incredible, mind-blowing design. The fingerprints of God absolutely everywhere. That's where the text goes. Hey, blessed is the one who finds wisdom. These are all the benefits of the wisdom. And here's the basis for the wisdom. You see the cosmos? There's a God who's behind all of this. And we ought to bend our knee to his his wisdom, even the, even the parts that contradict, uh, you know, our natural inclinations. And so because we live in this, in this, uh, this uh, universe of tremendous order, that's the reason why we bend our knee. You know, there's 15 constants or so in the, in the in physical universe. And if one of them went sideways, we wouldn't be here having this conversation. If gravity inexplicably was not the same tomorrow as it's always been, we wouldn't be having this conversation next Sunday. And I mean, this is the universe in which we live in. And our God is holding it together in the palm of his hand by the word of his power. But this transcendent God is not just cosmic and unrelatable. He comes in Jesus Christ and he shows us his tremendous love and care for us. And we can suppress this knowledge of God. We can deny it. We can try and dethrone him. But the fingerprints of God are throughout the cosmos. And the son of God, his death in that empty tomb after the crucifixion on the cross, it's irreversibly written into human history. And so all of humanity is without excuse. You know, God is not concealing himself. He's moved heaven and earth to reveal himself. And so 
you and I, we strive to create because we were created. And we strive to be children of wisdom because our God is a God of, of, of wisdom. And we want to live in congruence with that wisdom because of who he is. We love and we desire to be loved because we were created by a God of love. And so to surrender to God's wisdom in his word, it is to align and be in harmony with creation. And so we consider the goodness of this gospel. And I close with this. You know, wisdom being this tree of life. The book of Genesis, I reminded you earlier, it says that sin cut humanity off from the tree of life. But you know, Jesus went under the, Jesus went under the sword of God's judgment. Jesus was the one who went to the cross and he took our sin. And his tree of death has become our tree of life. And so this is why there is great joy in our hearts as we reflect on how everything that started in the garden is going to end in the garden city. The ongoing renewal, nourishment, flourishing of life that is eternal as children of God. Therefore, may the wisdom of God's word, this tree of life, guide us and grow us into who we were created to be. Imperfectly, but increasingly. I mean, imperfectly because we're all still sinners and we fail. But increasingly because united to him, full of the spirit, we desire to emulate the one who saved us in grace. We desire to be guided by his wisdom. And so between now and then, between now and our renewal, by God's grace, may we be, wisdom, may we be wise ministers in this city. We're not passive, uninvolved observers. We're not a church that's just going to meet in a field outside the city forever. We very much want to be ministers of grace and love and preachers of the gospel in our city. We're not, un, we're not uninvolved observers, but we're also not self-righteous saviors. We are humble, confident ministers. May God do this in, a, in, in us by his grace. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, the one who gets understanding. She's a tree of life to those who lay a hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by his wisdom founded the earth and by understanding under established the heavens. Let's pray.